Michael Miller joins us now, economist at DePaul University, a regular guest on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Welcome back, Michael. I hope that you're doing well. I am doing well, John. It's great to talk to you again. I wanted to ask you this question. Among the things that we've noticed higher prices for are eggs. Mm -hmm. And yet I saw a story the other day that said that egg producers are enjoying record profits. I thought if everything was more expensive for everybody, then why is it costing me more money and they're getting rich? Don't they have inflationary pressures, too? And it's not just egg producers. What's going on here, Michael? Yeah, they, uh, economists have always said that what will happen is when the price of the goods that uh, producers have to buy to produce go up, when their costs go up, they have to pass those prices on to you and me in the form of higher uh, prices for the final good. So, with, for example, with eggs, since you picked on that one in particular, we have uh, two things going on. We have the cost of chicken feed, believe it or not, is going up quite substantially because of what's been going on in the world. And on top of that, there's been an avian flu outbreak, which when it hits a particular flock, it takes out something like 90% of the, of the flock, and therefore the egg uh, supply is going to go down. So you would expect if demand remains the same and the supply goes down, that you're going to have a rise in price. And your question is an obvious one. Well, okay, they pass on the higher cost to you and me, but why would they still then make more profit? And some economists uh, have tried to, uh, I think it was the Kansas City Fed, looked into this question across the board. Are firms increasing their prices equal to only the increase in their cost? And they found out that the answer is no, that they're actually increasing the prices that they charge us more than their costs have gone up. And this would then translate into a higher amount of profit. And that's probably what we're seeing with the eggs in particular. They figure this may, it could be one of two things, John. It could be this, they're thinking, this is my chance to make a few bucks. Everybody knows prices are going up. I'm going to raise them even more than I need to, and I'll make some money. But what Kansas City, uh, these uh, Kansas City Fed economists found was most of that increase was in anticipation of future increases. In other words, they were covering what prices have already gone up in terms of their cost, but they've also built in some expected future increases in cost. And therefore, it was like, uh, my replacement costs are going to be higher, so I'm going to pass on those replacement costs to, uh, to my customers. But in the meantime, I'll end up making more profit. The oil industry does that, right? Yes, yes, that's certainly what the oil industry does. Uh, we had that, the, the question would be why. We do observe, for example, that oil prices rise much more quickly when uh, crude oil goes up than oil prices fall when, oil, when crude oil prices decline. And economists have never actually cracked that nut to figure out exactly why it's, it's, <laughs> it's not symmetrical. But a lot of it has to do with the, the oil companies argue it is replacement cost that matters, not the original cost of production. They build in an expectation of higher prices. But, of course, that does mean in that interim period they will make more profit. And I don't know what's right or wrong there. You could charge $1,000 for a dozen eggs and I won't buy it. I don't know why right. I feel a right to deny you as much money as you can make even on a staple like eggs. Is there an ethic involved there at all? Not, not in my mind, as long as there's not what I would, what we call in economics, coercion. As long as someone is not being forced to buy something, 
you know, when you have something like uh, insulin or whatever, then sometimes you become involved because this is life and death. But when you're dealing with eggs, you simply say, hey, here's the price. Uh, these are my costs. I, I have to pay more for feed. I have to pay more to protect my flock from avian flu. I'm going to pass that on to you, and I'm going to take a little extra in profit. And you either buy them or you don't. So I'm not as concerned about it. it you, you worry about it if there's what we would call monopoly power. In other words, the, farm, the firms are showing that there's not competition. But certainly with something like eggs and with most food, uh, competition is not an issue. Uh, they are certainly not monopoly uh, markets with monopoly maybe not. profits. Maybe not, but I think um, were I a government, I would maybe be interested in scoring the necessity of things like gas and milk sure. and insulin. And maybe it's yeah. not so easy to know what's what. It is tough. You are correct. Well, I'm going to write that down. He said that at 1216 <laughs> on WGN Radio. Michael Miller is a professor of economics at DePaul University. Michael, you might appreciate this. You were talking about how sometimes in times like this where there's inflation and extra costs for producers, say of eggs, a producer or a manufacturer might say, okay, we have to raise our price. And now that it's going up, let's raise it even more and just capture some profit. One of our listeners just texted in, and he said, I'm a business owner, and the person speaking is 100% correct. That's what I did. <laughs> I don't know what they, I don't know what they wow. sell, but they're, they're making more money as a result of these yeah. hard economic times. Um, so there's inflation. Did you also talk to producer Pete about disinflation or something like that? Yeah, uh, the, the big question this year uh, coming up in 2023 is how quickly will uh, inflation fall? So we have a term, economists have inflation, deflation, hyperinflation, and so forth. And when the rate of inflation declines, say from 8% to 6 down to 4 and down to 2 this is called disinflation. We had to make up a term for it, and we did. So one thing that the Fed is debating right now is how quickly this disinflation is going to occur. Is it going to be smooth and quick, or is it going to be slow and arduous, and we're going to have lots of pain along the way? And what a couple of economists tried to figure out is, uh, based upon the past, what are the chances that inflation will fall quickly versus slowly? And they looked at two periods, uh, the period before 1982, and only your listeners older than 50 would remember how horrible the inflation was in that period. Uh, very, very high rates of inflation, mortgage rates in the 18% range and so forth. But the period since 1982 has been a period of very mild inflation, which has been called the great moderation. And every time inflation would tick up, it would tick down relatively quickly back to the Fed's target. So what these economists are trying to figure out and actually what the FOMC is trying to figure out which one are we going to see this time? Are we back to the bad old days of very high, miserable inflation that just will not go away? Or are we now just in another phase of the great moderation? And as the Fed takes its actions, inflation is going to fall. Um, is going to fall you know, month after month. It's going to go down, which it has already done for six months. And it is going to hit the uh, Fed target of 2% faster than most people think it will. And um, they don't really come to a conclusion saying this is the answer. The answer is it's going to be quick or it's going to be slow. They just say we have these two options. 
And the Federal Reserve is going to have to make a decision as to exactly how aggressive they're going to be mm-hmm. based upon their guess as to whether or not inflation will fall quickly or slowly. Now, I'm hoping for the quick, but uh, we'll see. We had six months of decline, and that's a good start. Well, in the grand scheme of things, have the last 41 years been the exception or the rule? Wouldn't it be natural that it wouldn't go up too high, uh, that it would moderate itself one way or another? Yeah, see, that's that's kind of my thinking, is that we are still within the great moderation. Uh, and, and the reason I think this is because of what are called uh, inflationary expectations, that I think a lot of, of people, investors in particular, think that this has just been a very odd period caused by Ukraine, plus supply problems, a, a, a pandemic, all these things coming together at one time. And only under those unique circumstances would you get these big increases in inflation. And that overall, the Fed is still competent, and that we're going to get back to more normal times, which would be part of this great moderation. Uh, if I had to put money on one way or the other, I would go with that particular solution. In other words, that the Fed's aggressiveness should begin to slow because they have gotten inflation uh, started down. And with the economy, you know, we were seeing and production is going down, hours worked is declining, that maybe now would be the time to ease up, uh, raise rates only a little, say 25 basis points, and allow prices to moderate. Because we also know one other piece, the supply chain issue is over. Uh, this whole thing about ships in the middle of the ocean, this is mm-hmm, all over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that means that we're not going to have these pressures of continual, continual rising of prices caused by a supply chain problem. So I'm, I'm on the optimistic side of this particular debate. Well, I don't know if this relates to that, but a guest told us yesterday, reminded us from the flyover coalition, Dale Buss, that Wisconsin and Indiana have between them about $27 billion in excess pandemic relief funds sitting there, and they don't know what to do with it. So they're going to use it to attract manufacturers and subsidize profitable businesses or businesses to come to their states. And I thought, okay, why did we, you know, we shouldn't have given them that much money. We've got yeah, all this money that we're all paying for laying around, and states are trying to figure out what to do with it, and it doesn't have anything to do with the medical problem that the pandemic right. was. Right. Yeah, see, that that was an issue. We, we talked about that a lot, about having targeted uh, support. And, and during the pandemic, the government pretty much just puts money out there anywhere it could, as quickly as it could, in amounts uh, un, for, unknown of before. Uh, but there's, there's one positive side to it. If, in fact, these two states can use this money to create, say, research, development, uh, advance uh, productivity, we will get a larger supply. We will get a larger output. And that actually puts pressures on prices downward. Because you remember, you think of inflation as too many dollars chasing too few goods. If you create many more goods, your supply increases. Well, then you're going to have less inflation. And uh, so I think that could be in the long run, not the short run. In the long run, that could be a very positive for uh, stable prices. I'm looking at my producer, Pete. Pete, we still got a couple more minutes. Good, because I did want to ask you this. That doesn't sound like you, Michael. You're suggesting the government spending is a good thing, and that doesn't necessarily sound like you. Well, I'll tell you, I, I'm, 
there are two ways to face this uh, inflation problem. One would be to try to reduce the amount of demand, and that's what the Fed is doing. And the Federal Reserve is very good at doing that in terms of, of raising rates until we cry uncle and stop spending. And that's about what we have done. The alternative is, could the federal government have a role in this particular situation? And the answer is, if the government can, can uh, do things that would foster more productivity, that would foster investment and uh, research, that would allow for an increase in supply, then we would be, have these two groups, the Fed and the government, working from the two sides of the market. One which is getting demand under control and the other which is trying to stimulate the amount of supply. If government does that right by providing these tax incentives or this funding of research and so forth, that is a good thing. That is one thing that government could do that would have quite a positive outcome. Well, is there a problem with the inflation rate going down too quickly? I mean, do you want it to go up gradually and down gradually? I don't suppose it's going to drop like a rock anyway, but you sort of alluded no, to I, that earlier. Not that I know of. I've not seen any research that says that uh, it should go down slowly or at the same rate that it went up. Uh, what the Fed is, of course, doing is they're going to continue to squeeze until it gets closer to its target rate of 2%. And I just saw a piece uh, uh, a, a very respected economist that was one of Mr. Obama's advisor named Lawrence Summers. Uh, he, was, uh, he was asked the question, should the Fed, one way to make the inflation go away faster is to raise your target. So get down to three instead of two, and then you'll get there faster. And he said, absolutely not. The 2% was a, was a fine target. I happen to agree with him on this and that the Fed should continue. And the faster we get there, the better, because inflation is is disruptive uh it doesn't do anybody any good and therefore if we could get prices to stabilize sooner rather than later that would be a good outcome well that question just sounds like should we move the goalpost and then call it exactly. a exactly doesn't seem to make sense to me i'd rather be one percent i think than three or four or eight we're at what right. are we at now we're under seven now aren't we uh yes we're at 6.5 on an annual basis but if you take a look at the month to month increase uh, and annualize that, we're probably, we're down more like around 4% and so forth, which is good. We're, we're making progress. And um, so, but the, the thing is that this housing issue uh, has been a problem. It just, it, it, uh, it was predicted six months ago that housing would not fall as fast as these others, that rents and so forth would continue to rise. But I'm hearing that's, that, uh, that new rental contracts on average are showing much smaller increases. And that's a good sign that maybe this housing portion of the consumer price index is going to finally uh, begin to slow down, and this will allow the overall index to fall uh, closer to the 2% target. Yeah. Michael Miller, economist, DePaul University. Always a pleasure, Michael. You know that. Join us again, sir. It would be my pleasure to do it again, John. I always enjoy this. We've been talking lately about the restaurant business and how some restaurants are doing better as more folks come downtown. But it's not necessarily the business crowd that is populating these places. And in fact, I want to talk here a little bit about what's happening on the commercial real estate side with Robert Sevem, who is the vice chairman of a company called Savals. Thanks for joining us, Robert. You're on WGN Radio. Thank you, John. My pleasure. So what is it you guys do? So we represent and advise companies with regards to their real estate needs uh, in Chicago and around the world. 
who's in a typical client for you in Chicago? You know, it varies. Uh, a lot of our clients span professional service firms like law firms, but we also do work for tech companies, headquarters, corporations, and also not-for-profits and universities. So really so, the amalgam of, of spectrum of business that you see in, in the city of Chicago. So I got 100 employees and I want to have a place downtown and then I come to you and what am I asking for? What does a business want when they're looking to locate? Sure. I think it starts with understanding the employee base and what are the goals and what are the objectives of the business. So starting with understanding those goals and then and doing a profile of not only the people that work at the company that you run or lead, but also understanding the types of people that you're looking to recruit further, further down the line. What are those people going to look for as it relates to feeling that they are committed to your company, the culture you're setting forth, and then the experience that they have when they get to your office and they collaborate and work with colleagues and with mentors. And so it starts with really understanding the human capital first before we get into, you know, which submarket and which building is going to support that business plan the best. How's Chicago doing? How's the business corridor? How's the financial district doing? Well, it's it's a tale of two cities, actually, John. Uh, on the on the flight to quality end, where you see a lot of these trophy buildings that are being constructed, and you read a lot about Fulton Market and and a lot of the the buzz around you know these new neighborhoods that are being developed. There is a plethora of activity. These are neighborhoods and buildings that are very appealing for tenants and companies that can make decisions that have done their studies and that have the financial wherewithal to be able to go in and, and strike really good deals with these owners. Then on the other hand, you have what we look at as the rest of the marketplace, right, which is sort of stratified into uh, the LaSalle Street tenancy that we talk about and read about. You've got tenants that are in second-generation buildings that, that haven't quite understood or made decisions around what they should be doing. They're trying to understand their labor pool. Um, maybe they haven't set policy yet for whether or not people should come in, Maybe they're leaving it up to the employee base because there's concern around whether or not uh, that would be um, offensive or difficult for the employee to feel like they are part of the culture if they're being told what to do. But we're seeing more migration into the world of policy setting, and we're also seeing a good number of people who are very interested in apprentice-based positions as it relates to how they work. So, for example, if you're at a law firm or a bank or a design firm, or even in the real estate business, and you know you can only learn by watching others on the job, and your mentors and supervisors are looking at how you're performing, you can't do that consistently from a remote location when you're siloed. So to advance your career, if you're ambitious, you're more likely than not going to feel a sense of wanting to come into your office. And then the question is, what is that office and that location and building providing you? Given that we've seen a change in the last two years, in what people look for, right? So there is an element of hospitality that is being driven into some of these building solutions because we've recognized and developers have recognized that to get people to feel energized to come in outside simply of their career ambitions, mm -hmm. they like to know that there are other things that they can do that they got used to doing by working remotely, having that flexibility, being able to access a gym, being able to access, you know, other areas of their lives, which sort of blend in this live, work, play concept. And that's what we're seeing more of in downtown Chicago. 
Yeah, what's that look like? Give me the laundry list. I mean, the gym. I would imagine people also want open airy spaces. Um, yes. Uh, contemporary food or food trucks. I'll bet they want it to be better air safety. How am I doing so far? You're doing really well. You're, you're, you, could, you could jump in my role right away, John. So um, what, what, uh, what they're looking for is the following. And, it, and there are two areas of this, right? The first bucket are the, what we call the amenities. The other is health wellness, right? So let's start with the latter. Um, people want a, a work environment where there is a lot of natural light, it's airy, there's spaciousness, and it's comfortable, Right. And that definitely accelerated during COVID, this concept of having space and health and wellness elements to a building and to their environment has become uh, very important. So developers are, are really thinking long and hard about how they can how they can do that in their building. So you're seeing, you know, greater size rooftop decks. You're seeing biophilia, green areas in spaces that tenants are building out, but also in the buildings that developers are constructing or existing buildings that owners are reinvesting in. You're seeing a lot more of that. If you look at a typical work floor, John, uh, before the pandemic, 60% of a work floor space in a typical office building was occupied by around 60% of work desks, whether it's private offices or open spaces that have workstations. Now that number has dropped to less than 50%, but you're seeing the amenitization rise from about 5% to 20% of that space, right? So having people... Uh, have areas to collaborate and do things mm -hmm. that are great for engagement. And then in terms of the, the, the bucket that, that I mentioned first, which is the amenitization, um, let's go down that list. You're seeing larger fitness centers. You're seeing uh, very technologically enabled tenant lounges where employees can walk out of their office, go down a few floors or up a few floors, and sit in this uh, in almost like a business class airport lounge feel, right, where they can sit and huddle, grab coffee, talk to a colleague, do their work and go back to their workspace when, when they need to or when they have a meeting. Um, if you keep pushing the envelope on that, you, you know, you're seeing um, some buildings you know, offer pet care. Some buildings uh, give you dry cleaning services. Grab-and-go lunch options are plentiful. And we're not just talking about those that are satisficing, but those that are you know, branded and are trendy and are healthy. And so all of these things that um, we sort of have created in our, in our world during COVID, which is this need for better quality, faster, and convenient with a hospitality umbrella around it, we're seeing uh, in leading office buildings. And those office buildings that aren't leading with it and they're redeveloping and they're following, you're seeing a lot of repurposing of second-generation buildings in that regard. So, you know, the, the, the new construction buildings are leading the way and the others are, are following very closely behind if they have the wherewithal to do it. Robert, we got to go. Just give me a, a headline answer. Are you optimistic about downtown Chicago? In the long term, I'm optimistic. We have to be positive. We have to be patient, and we have to collect a lot of data. I'll leave you with this. A lot of tenants are moving into new spaces that they are building out this year. Lots of leases were signed in the last two years in new buildings with new space ideation, new modalities of work. Let's see what the data suggests in terms of how people come in and their experiences, and I think that will lead the way. So we should be patient, we should be positive, and uh, I think in, in a year from now, I'd love to have another conversation to see how it went, and we can chat about it. Let's not wait a year. That's Robert Sevam, who's the vice chairman of a company called Savals, S-A-V-I-L-L-S. That's their website, savals.com.
Nice to talk to you, Robert. Really interesting. We'll be in touch. Sounds great. Thanks, John. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Here's more business news and Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. Rush University System for Health has announced plans for a new outpatient cancer center in Lyle. The 55,000-square-foot center will be located at 2455 Corporate West Drive. The plans have been submitted to the state, which has to approve. The proposed new facility will provide more cancer treatment than the current Lyle location with updated technology, including diagnostic imaging. Other services include infusion therapy, radiation therapy, supportive oncology, lab services, urgent care center, and a pharmacy. Chicago saw a record amount of venture capital investment in 2022. Cranes reports startup funding topped $10 billion for the first time. And it happened as investment dropped nationally during the past year. A single deal contributed to half of Chicago's record funding, $5.2 billion invested by Walgreens in healthcare provider Village MD. According to PitchBook's Venture Monitor, the $10 billion is sharply higher than Chicago's $6.6 billion in VC investment in 2021. Nationally, venture investment fell 31% last year compared to 2021. And while deals in Chicago also dropped, investment here hasn't declined as much. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Let's do the business of food. Here's Steve Alexander. Thank you. Happy Friday, and thanks to the Chevy Silverado for sponsoring us today. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Okay, time for an enormous effort. And to say it's an enormous effort is probably an understatement. That's Barbara Rader, the Census Director for the USDA, and she's talking about the Census of Agriculture, which farmers all over the country and Puerto Rico have received in the mail. And I want to thank the farmers in advance for the time they take to provide the information. It's very, very valuable. Hubert Hamer, who runs the USDA's statistics service. The Census of Agriculture measures the structure of U.S. agriculture. How much land, how many people are involved. And he says it lets the rest of the world know who is working on farms. We collect demographic information, uh, the age of the operators, the sex of the operators. So we're able to, uh, for instance, take a look at the contributions of women in agriculture, to look at the contributions of veterans in agriculture. And the census is so important that every, and I mean every, state and county and local ag organization of every kind has been urging any farmer who will listen to fill out the form and get it sent in. And who's going to be using this information? Congress, when they're considering legislation like the Farm Bill, you have agencies like the Farm Service Agency when they are monitoring areas for disaster assistance. They're using data uh, from the Census of Agriculture. Now, I know some farmers feel that they're being nagged about this. They've been hearing about the census and turn it in, turn it in, turn it in for a long time now. But we're down to the, well, let's see, the last couple of weeks. February 6th is the deadline to return the forms. Or you can do it online at agcounts.usda.gov. And it doesn't matter what kind of farmer or rancher you are. Corn, beans, wheat, flowers, fruit, veggies, nuts, livestock, any and all of it. As long as your products you raised and sold brought in $1,000 or more, or normally would have, during 2022. That website, again, if you want to take part online, is agcounts.usda.gov. Okay, that's the end of my nagging. From the dairy farm to your belly, today's National Cheese Lover's Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. Mexican restaurants in Chicagoland are expanding. Let's talk to Stephen Marks, the founder and CEO of Guzman y Gómez. Uh, Stephen, this is John. You're on WGN. How are you? 
Great, John. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good. Do I understand correctly you're an Australian? Well, I'm actually a New Yorker that moved to Australia 20 years ago. So I'm a <laughs> full New Yorker, having to live in Australia. I, Even because right I just thought it was... Uh, <laughs> well, there you go. Because I thought it was strange. I thought, what's a New Yorker from Australia doing opening a Mexican restaurant in the suburbs? But there you are, huh? Yeah, I get that question all the time. It's really funny. 20 years ago when I moved to Australia, and, you know, growing up in New York, I was so lucky and privileged to have such amazing Mexican food that when I went to Australia, it wasn't there. You know, and the way to do things properly is to bring in Mexican chefs. So that's what we did. So everybody, you know, when they say, oh, this is Mexican food from Australia, it's Mexican food. It just happened to start in Australia. But it is as authentic and as clean and as delicious as any Mexican food that anybody's had here in the U.S. So you got a new location. It's um, in Schaumburg. You have one in Naperville. I understand you're opening four more. What's the difference between Mexican food and authentic Mexican food? What do we find at your place that maybe we find differently elsewhere? Well, you know what we've done differently. It's kind of, you know, when you think about traditional fast food, I mean, they've got the fast part, but it's not food anymore. You know what I mean? And I think the younger generation is so much more knowledgeable. So at GYG, we're all about the food. I mean, we're obsessed with quality and cleanliness of food, but we've figured out the fast part of traditional fast food. So we have 180 restaurants that are mostly drive-thrus. You know, so you can go through the drive-thru, you can do take-up, you can do uh, takeaway delivery, but the quality is there. I mean, you walk into a restaurant. We had opening day yesterday in Schaumburg, which was incredible. The energy of our restaurants, and we believe that the masses – you know, the goal for GYG is to reinvent fast food because the masses is what needs health the most, right, and clean food the most. And that's something that's never really been done, obviously, well uh, in the U.S. And, th- and that's the real point of difference. What's on the menu? I mean, I would guess, but tell me what's popular, what's the best seller, what do we specialize in there? So we, got, we have Angus steak, free-range chicken, you know, carnitas, brisket. You know, we do enchilada burritos. We do Cali burritos with fries instead of rice and beans. We make beautiful salads. We do breakfast, lunch, dinner. And it's just the quality of ingredients. All fruit and veg comes in fresh. You know, all the chicken is, fr- is flame-grilled. And I just think that, you know, we have these amazing salsa stations with, you know, roasted jalapeno and chipotle salsas and habanero salsas. It's just that the quality and the value has not been seen here. You know what I mean? And I think when you walk into a GYG and everybody's like, oh, but this is fast casual. There's nothing casual to anything at GYG. And the energy is what really delivers it. So from day one, John, we've always had this foundation that we will never compromise on the quality of, of our food or our people. And I think that's the real game changer here. It's just the energy of what we bring to the market. You're going to hear more about this group, GYG, Guzmini Gomez, founder Stephen Marks, GYG. they got two now and more to come. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks for joining us today. Beautiful. Thanks for your time. Thanks, John.